Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Lon He Chen. I'm the David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution. I want to welcome you to Hoover Capital Conversations. The Hoover Institution is one of the country's preeminent research centers with a mission dedicated to the principles of individual, economic, and political freedom, private enterprise, and limited representative government. This Capital Conversation series is meant to bring together Hoover Fellows like me with our nation's leading policymakers to discuss really significant policy challenges and how we might solve them. Today, I'm really delighted to be joined by Senator Rob Portman of Ohio. Uh, for the last 30 years, Senator Portman has been in the middle of some of our biggest public policy challenges trying to solve them, first as a member of the US House from Ohio, then in the Bush administration as US trade rep, and of course, director of the Office of Management and Budget, and for the last several years as United States Senator from Ohio, where I didn't realize this, he's introduced more than 240 bills, including 200 bipartisan ones. Uh, he served on a number of different committees across a number of different issue areas, really has been a leader uh, on so many different issues. Senator Portman, it's great to be with you today. Thanks, Lonnie. Always good to be with you, my friend. So I want to start with a simple question. Is bipartisanship dead? Uh, this is something I know you, you have been such a productive member of the Senate during your time there. It's something you've taken very seriously as you've thought about some of our big public policy challenges. We're not going to be able to solve some of these things in a, in a unipartisan way. But gosh, there's a lot of pessimism around America now about whether we can still get things done in a bipartisan fashion. What's your view on, on that? And do you think it's possible? Well, Lonnie, I think it's harder than it was uh, you know, 30 years ago when I first kind of got into the public service space. I was working in for George H.W. Bush, uh, including as his legislative director, believe it or not. Um, and I, I think things have changed enough that it's, it's harder uh, you know, to find a consensus. However, you can find it. And you mentioned the work we've done in the, in the administrations, both with regard to President Obama and President Trump, we were able to get a lot of things done that helped the country on, on things like the opioid crisis, um, also on human trafficking, but also on tax reform. And, and we were able to, on a bipartisan basis, uh, move some issues forward that were under the radar, but, but very important. The problem has been the bigger issues, you know, the tax issues, the healthcare issues, uh, those have been harder to find bipartisanship on. And I think it's partly a function of our new social media reality, which is people are, are getting their information from sources that uh, tend to agree with them and maybe hardening their positions on the right or on the left. And there's a little less room left in the middle. In my view, that's one of the challenges in addition to what we see on cable news and in terms of the media uh, kind of dividing uh, in terms of right or left. And not as much down the middle. Um, but there are some of us who, uh, you know, although we have a point of view and I'm a fiscal conservative, proud of that, and a uh, Republican and proud of that, uh, we do try to find that common ground because that's ultimately what we're, what we're asked to do as members of Congress. We're in the middle of that right now with regard to infrastructure. I just got off the phone with the White House. We're trying to come up with a way to put together an infrastructure package that makes sense for our country. And it won't be perfect on either side, but it is one where I think there is a possibility of a, of a bipartisan breakthrough. So far, we haven't seen that, even though candidate Biden campaigned as someone who wanted to reach across the aisle and even said so in his inaugural address. Frankly, he has not been willing to do that until now. I hope that that will change with 
infrastructure. Well, I hope you're right. You know, one of the things that I observed is when we were going through this debate over uh, the so-called COVID relief package a few months ago, shortly after President Biden took office, uh, you and several other Republicans, I thought, made a very good faith effort to, to put forward a, a middle ground that could be followed, that could still deliver the kind of both relief as well as uh, targeted kinds of things on, on addressing the COVID challenge that our country needed. Uh, that effort got rebuffed, unfortunately. So what about this current debate do you think could be different on infrastructure? What are some of the ways forward as you think about working with the Biden White House and with Democrats in the Senate and the House to get something done on a bipartisan basis? Where, where do you see the areas of agreement potentially being? Well, I think it's different in a couple of respects. One is that the COVID-19 package was the first initiative from the Biden administration. And some of my Democratic colleagues who normally would have been working with us said they were very hesitant not to give the president a victory on his first package. Um, second, COVID uh, was anything on COVID-19 at the time was very popular and they knew that. And so in effect, they felt they were taking no you know, political risk by ignoring Republican views and just moving ahead without us. Uh, but there were 10 of us on the Republican side and 10 of us on the Democratic side who put together a COVID-19 package at the end of last year. You may remember that, that was the $900 billion package. It seemed like a lot of money. And then when, the, when President Biden was elected, he came in with another 1.9 trillion on top of that before the 900 billion had even been spent. And there, uh, there were again, 10 of us Republicans who put together a proposal, went to the White House and the next morning we were told before any negotiation had taken place that uh, they were going to use this extraordinary measure called reconciliation, which essentially says you don't need to have uh, votes from the other side because you can do it with a bare majority of 50 votes, which is what they did. Uh, it was too bad because it, it enabled us um, to get off on the wrong foot rather than the right foot in terms of bipartisanship, but also a lot of bad policy was passed and we're seeing the effects of a lot of that now. The, the higher inflation you're seeing that, um, I, you know, I, I love your economic folks at, at Hoover and many of them uh, don't agree with Larry Summers about much, who's an economic uh, uh, you know, expert on the, on the Democratic side, but they would have all agreed that by priming the pump the way they did at a time when the economy was improving anyway, that there would likely be pressures on inflation and ultimately interest rates. And we're seeing that. Um, the consumer price index is up, uh, highest it's been you know, for uh, many years, really, going back to uh, you know, probably 20 years ago. And, and you also see, unfortunately, you know, a lot of funding that's, that's not being used for COVID, but using for other, used for other purposes because the 1.9 trillion included a number of things that had nothing to do with addressing the healthcare crisis, the COVID-19 crisis. So uh, we'll see how this all shakes out in terms of the economy, but I'm very concerned that there was too much stimulus added to the economy at a time when it wasn't needed. And specifically this proposal extended the federal supplement on unemployment insurance, which has uh, dealt the economy a double blow. One is the higher inflation and the more, uh, you know, pressure on interest rates. But the other one is the difficulty in finding workers. And this is now a national crisis. We have 8.1 million jobs uh, opening uh, open right now. So it's a record number of job openings. Never have we had this in our nation's history. And it's really uh, creating a, a, an impediment to economic recovery uh, to the point that some businesses are literally closing. Uh, there's a restaurant in Columbus, Ohio that just closed because they simply cannot find workers. 
and other businesses are struggling or uh, they're lowering their their expectations for the future because you know they're, they're not going to be able to to find the workers to be able to expand markets as they would like to and others yet are using technology or automation to replace workers which is not a good thing so this is having a detrimental impact already and my hope is that more states will join Ohio, my home state, which just decided to do this, and about 18 other states as of this afternoon who are saying, let's stop this $300 additional supplement on unemployment insurance on top of the state benefit. And let's get back to a more normal situation where, yes, people who lose their job through no fault of their own are able to get help from unemployment insurance. Uh, but when there's so many jobs being offered, let's shift the emphasis to how to encourage people to go back to work. How, how do you make the argument about the, the importance of um, a fiscally responsible approach going forward when it just seems like it is so easy for there to be proposal after proposal that will spend an unprecedented amount of money? I mean, if you look at, for example, the President's American Jobs Act, the amount of spending contained in there, the amount of spending we're talking about now in this infrastructure package, um, you know, a lot of this, I think, to many Americans sounds enticing at some level. The notion that, you know, we can generate activity, we can generate jobs, if only government gets more involved. How do you present the counter argument in some ways to that? How do you present the argument for the value of fiscal responsibility? Well, it's easier to make the argument today of, with the excesses of the Biden administration. You're right, when you add those up, that's about six trillion dollars of new spending. Uh, again, let's put this in perspective. That, that used to be a lot of money. Our budget's uh, you know, just over $4 trillion for everything. And um, so you're looking at the largest uh, debt uh, in our nation's history, of course. But as a percent of GDP, which is really what you ought to look at, you know, what the, the percent of the economy, what's your sort of your carrying costs, um, it's also the largest ever, with the possible exception of one year after World War II, when, of course, we didn't have the overhang of the major mandatory spending programs like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. So it's an entirely different phenomenon. It's, it's, it, the, our fiscal house has never been in this much trouble. And the question is, you know, what's going to happen in terms of mentioned interest rates and inflation, uh, but also just the possibility of a financial crisis. So it's getting to that point where we really need to be concerned about it. And the deficit, of course, year to year is also at, at record levels last year, at record levels this year, um, will be close to it, depending on how much of this agenda of the $6 trillion is actually passed into law. It's also, though, uh, on the, so it's easy to make the arguments because it's, it's such a, an excessive amount of spending that we really have never dealt with in this country. On the other side of that is that among the public, there seems to be less concern about deficits, which is what you're alluding to uh, when you, you talked about is it's easier just to spend because people are looking for help on infrastructure or on COVID or with regard to the American Family Plan, with regard to tax relief, um, and yet not concerned as much about the cost. So we have to make a better argument as Republicans, frankly, about the dangers uh, of overspending and not sticking to a budget. Ultimately, most Americans do believe that a balanced budget makes sense. They do it in their families. Um, the places where they live, their cities and their states, their counties have to do it. Um, so that's one thing to go back to is to say, we should not spend you know, more than we take in. Um, and I think even though we have historically in Washington not done that, in other words, we have spent more than we take in because uh, we've had 
perennial chronic deficits, uh, but not at this level. So I think we need to get back to that message. It's a very basic message and say at a minimum, you know, let's stop, stop spending so much so that we can have a better future for our kids and grandkids who otherwise are left holding the bag. And, um, and the consequences will be, as I said earlier, you know, the, 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 the dollar losing value, the inflation, the interest rates being higher and just less opportunity for coming generations. You, know, you very rightly note, we haven't even really had a conversation about some of these large mandatory spending programs, uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, which has undergone a massive expansion uh, since the Affordable Care Act was passed in, in 2010. Um, is there any prospect for any kind of conversation? I, I don't even mean a reform conversation, just a conversation about broaching the reform conversation yeah. when it comes to Medicare or Social Security in particular. Well, I, I hope so. We've got a bill that, uh, that I'm a co-sponsor of that Governor, now Senator Mitt Romney, put forward, and it's bipartisan. There are four or five Democrats and four or five Republicans, and it's called the Trust Act, and it's just about looking at the trust funds of these various programs. Um, you mentioned Medicare as an example. Um, the Medicare Trust Fund is a little different than the Social Security Trust Fund because it, it doesn't pay for as much of the program about uh, two thirds, three quarters of Medicare is, is really paid for ultimately through general revenues. But the trust fund is an issue. And that's one that I think even Democrats have to agree um, needs to be addressed. Certainly, the Social Security Trust Fund is a huge issue there. You know, we're expecting it will be depleted by the year 2034. Uh, I think maybe even sooner, given the more recent economic news. But that's that's the sort of thing where I would hope we would be able to get you know, people focus is how to fix these trust funds, which in effect then enables us to, to, uh, to change the trajectory. Um, if in fact that trust fund becomes insolvent, by the way, in 2034, as an example, under law, there'd be a 25% roughly reduction in social security benefits. Now, no one wants that to happen. And frankly, no one probably thinks it will happen, but it forces a decision to have to change that law and come up with better ways to deal with uh, social security. Um, right now, you have a lot of people who are um, near or at retirement who, who would have strong views on this. So you probably have to say this has to do with future retirees. Mm -hmm. And um, that's all the more reason to get started on this right now, because we have more and more people obviously over the age of 62 or 65, and that cohort's growing. So the sooner we can begin this process, the better as to future retirees. Why do you think there's not more of a bipartisan consensus on on these questions when it, it seems to me and, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if you do see the bipartisan consensus there, that that would be of note, certainly. But it, it seems like these are such significant problems that affect people in red states and blue states. This is not just mm -hmm. a red state problem. The solvency of Social Security or the ability for Medicare to continue to provide certainly the trust fund side to provide inpatient services as those become more expensive over time. Uh, why, why are we not seeing more of a bipartisan willingness to address some of these questions specifically? Well, I think in healthcare, it's, it's harder because it's healthcare. Um, and because again, the trust funds, part A, part B uh, trust funds as an example, uh, are not as uh, a big a part of the of the overall financing of the program, so much would come from general revenues and people would say, well, let's just raise taxes on the democratic side. Um, by the way, that's not sustainable because you can't raise taxes high enough to keep up with the mandatory spending, as you know. I mean, mathematically, it's simply not possible. 
Right. Uh, so we have to deal with this um, over the next 30 years or we will bankrupt the country. But on Social Security, I think there's a chance. I do. I, I, maybe I'm being uh, too optimistic, but I, I do think there's a chance because, again, you have this looming um, insolvency. As you had, you remember back in 1983, the last time there was really any major reform of entitlement programs was when Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, Tip O'Neill being Speaker of the House, Democrat, Ronald Reagan, Republican president, got together and said, you know, let's take the politics out of this and figure out how to work this forward. And at that time, they did raise taxes because payroll taxes went up, which Democrats would insist upon. But they also made adjustments in, in the benefit formula. Um, and in doing so, they were able to save Social Security, in essence, until now. And by the way, um, in the election in 1984, Ronald Reagan won, as I recall, 49 of 50 yeah. states. <laughs> yeah. So it was not the political death knell that people thought it would be, uh, with Republicans, again, advocating for reforms that resulted in, in adjustments to the to, to the benefit side. So it's possible to do it. It's, in effect, uh, as you can see there, easier to do it in a way with divided government. Well, we have divided government now. And so maybe there 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 is a way to do it. Um, I shouldn't say we have divided government now. We have a 50-50 Senate, but we, we essentially operate in 50-50 Senate with those narrow, narrow margins and narrow margins in the House where you've really got to get Republicans and Democrats some of them working together. And after 2022, uh, there's a possibility we could have a majority in the Senate again and a majority in the House based on historical um, standards that probably is more likely than not because typically the president that wins the White House um, in an election during that first midterm loses seats in the House and the Senate. So maybe that would be a better opportunity even for you know true divided government between the House, Senate, and the, and the White House to be able to take the politics out of some of this and get some of these things done that really have to have to be addressed. You know, more broadly, I think one of the challenges that we face right now, in addition to all of these fiscal issues, is how can we keep the American economy competitive in this sort of globally competitive or globally contentious environment? Uh, there's some legislation I know you've worked on uh, that would really bolster our efforts at innovation, at research and development, at creating the right environment uh, for the U.S. economy to be more competitive. How do you think about the competitiveness of our economy and, and what are some policy changes we might make to ensure that we remain the most innovative place to start a business, to grow a business and to create jobs uh, as we move toward future generations? Well, Andy, I, I would start with the tax and regulatory environment and make the simple point that after 2017, uh, which was the uh, tax reform and tax cut legislation and the regulatory reforms that were made during 2017, 2018, um, during 2018 and 2019, when the tax bill became um, you know, a, a part of the, the international competitiveness issue, we got more investment in jobs here in the United States by lowering taxes. In other words, we took our tax rates uh, to a lower level than most countries around the world, we got to about the average of the OECD countries, then we created additional incentives to bring IP back and went to a global tax system that made more sense rather than taxing foreign income and then taxing it at home. We did what most countries do, which was we simply taxed income here and it helped. And so you had, as of the months just before the pandemic, uh, not just strong economic growth, but a very inclusive uh, economy in the sense that wages were going up primarily for low and middle income workers. As of February of last year, we had 19 straight months of 
wage increases of 3% or more. Think about that. We had the lowest poverty rate in the history of the country going back to the 1950s when we started keeping track of it. And as you know, low unemployment rates, uh, particularly historic lows for Blacks, Hispanics, Asian Americans. Um, and for overall, it was about a 50-year low. So there was, there, was, there was a lot of good being done. One of the things that, that I found particularly helpful about the tax reforms was that it stopped the inversions. We literally had companies becoming foreign companies in order to get up from under our tax code. So I would start there. Um, but then I would also say to, to your question, we've got to do more. We've got to create an incentive for R&D being done here. Um, and we have to be cognizant of the fact that other countries, particularly countries uh, in Asia, are spending a lot of money on developing innovations themselves. As an example, uh, 5G or artificial intelligence, um, or more recently, the semiconductor industry. So we do have to create that incentive through tax uh, relief and through regulatory relief to bring more innovation to our shores, but probably have to be even more uh, focused on the supply chain issues and how to ensure that we're bringing back semiconductor production, that we're in encouraging AI production here through some basic science supported by the government and by the taxpayer. And I'm not, a, I'm not averse to that. That's a lot of what's being talked about right now in this new legislation called Endless Frontiers. And uh, we'll see how that all, all, all works out. I've been very insistent that if we put more taxpayer money into the R&D side and specifically into some of these new technologies, uh, that we ensure that that technology isn't then taken in effect by China and other countries, which has happened for the past couple of decades. We have helped fuel China's rise in their military and their economy in part by not reacting as we should have to programs like their Thousand Talents Plan, um, where they actually bring um, Chinese money to bear to buy uh, research and to get researchers to take their, um, their best technology, their best innovations to China. And, you know, we've had a number of arrests in the past uh, uh, four or five uh, months of uh, researchers who were part of these programs who um, did not tell the truth on their, uh, on their government uh, forms when they got government funding from the taxpayer. And instead, they were sharing this research with, with China. So we've got to shut that down as we bring more money in the front door, be sure that the money uh, is not funding research that then goes out the back door to China and other countries. So... I think there's a combination of things here that need to be done, uh, but part of it certainly is to increase our competitiveness through encouraging more research and development here, and then being sure that research and development isn't taken overseas. Uh, we're going to take some questions now from, from the audience, and one of the first questions actually relates to this topic of China. And Denise is curious about where you put the chances of a comprehensive bipartisan bill to address some of these challenges that China creates. Some of them are economic, as you've noted. Some of them are, are, are sort of historic economic predation. Some of them relate to geopolitical or military concerns. Some relate to human rights issues. Where do you see the likelihood of there being activity on any of these dimensions? Yeah, I think this is an example, uh, as we talked about earlier, where there's a possibility for bipartisanship. We'll see. But I think that the idea of making it easier to do research here in this country, and particularly with regard to these areas, I mentioned uh, 5G and artificial intelligence, uh, certainly what's going on with semiconductors right now where we have a, a real supply chain failure. I think there's a possibility of us doing something on a bipartisan basis here. 
And again, my insistence would be that as we do that, we also protect what we're doing here and not allow our particularly taxpayer funded research uh, to be taken overseas and essentially allowing China to leapfrog us uh, on economic and, and military and healthcare and, and, and other, other sectors. So I think it's possible. And I think that's uh, you know, why I'm, I'm more hopeful than, than some about some bipartisanship, even during this, this, this year where it's been pretty tough so far to get any, any sense of uh, uh, comedy from, from the Biden White House. Um, so I'm hopeful that that can happen and certainly should happen. The other thing that we must mention with regard to, to China is the human rights issues and particularly what's happening uh, with regard to the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, um, you know, what, what's happening in terms of them using technology, including facial recognition technology and other uh, innovations that they have made to you know, help keep the regime in power and to uh, abuse uh, human rights. And we have to be cognizant of that as well and, and take that into account. Uh, Ronald's got a question ab ab about this issue of shifts in public attitudes. In particular, he asks about, is it possible to shift the public thinking that some seem to have that the federal government is responsible for solving every problem in our lives? Maybe I'll reframe this a little bit to say, and it goes back to this role of government fiscal responsibility question. Um, do you see there being an opportunity to shift the public's attention? Is there a particular issue you think that might animate the public's attention? You know, one of the challenges, the numbers we're talking about in terms of spending, for example, are so enormous. It's hard for folks to conceptualize what that means. It's hard for, I, I don't even, I mean, $6 trillion is a meaningless number. It's so big at some level. Yeah. How do we have this conversation in a really concrete way to, to shift opinions on these things? Yeah, $6,000 billion. Um, and uh, I, love, I love the analogies. You can stack the bills up, you get, you get you know, to, to Mars. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's hard to explain it to people because it's so, the numbers are so large and, and it seems so, so abstract, but it does affect us in our daily lives. I think it's a great question, and I think it's a fundamental one that Hoover has been so good at, at trying to answer over the years. And one reason I love the Hoover economists I work with is that it's not just about a specific economic issue. It's about a decision by America to continue to be a land where people have the opportunity to be able to help themselves uh, and therefore to meet their American dream. And that is not about government. That's about self-initiative. It's about creating an environment for success where you reward entrepreneurship and risk-taking. And, and that's ultimately you know, what's created the, uh, the greatest economy on the face of the earth and what so many other countries in the world are, are looking to try to emulate. And here we are seemingly in the last several months, you know, shifting the other way, going to a more uh, of a socialist sort of orientation where the government does step in and take care of your needs from, from cradle to grave. And that certainly has not been what's made us um, this beacon of hope and opportunity for the rest of the world. So that's the bigger question. In terms of something that might be helpful short term, I will just say, if you walk down your main street, wherever you are today, um, look at the help when it's on. And forget the 8 million jobs that are open right now, which is historically high, never been this high in our history. Uh, talk to your uh, local store owner, you know, talk to your a local restaurant, talk to your local manufacturer where there are 720,000 manufacturing jobs being offered right now and ask them, you know, how's it going? And they will say, probably I'm worried about inflation because my raw product or my, my, my you know, uh, prices are going up from everything I'm, I'm buying. 
But then they will also say, we just can't find workers, even with being offering higher wages and offering uh, uh, benefits for people, bonuses to be able to, to come on board. They just can't get workers. And, and this is an example where what Democrats have said is, let's do something extraordinary during COVID. And it was understandable at that time. People had lost their jobs through no fault of their own. Let's dial back a year from now as an example. Uh, but that's not the case today. That's not the case at all. Not only are businesses reopening, but they're reopening safely. Uh, you know, schools hopefully will start to reopen soon. Um, around the country. Many have, uh, but about 54% of them, uh, I'm, I'm told, are offering uh, K through 12 uh, on, on a regular schedule. The others are not. So this is all things that I think the American people will look at this and say, wow, you know, why are we continuing to have a federal taxpayer supplement on top of local state unemployment insurance? It creates a situation where a number of people, to be precise, on average, 42% of the people are making more on unemployment insurance than they could at their job, where on average, people are being paid twice uh, the federal minimum wage to be on unemployment insurance, and that creates a disincentive to go back to work. Um, I've been accused by some of my colleagues on the Democratic side of, of saying that I think people are lazy. Not at all. I think people are logical. And if you're giving people more money not to work than to work, and they can stay home um, and, and perhaps work on other projects uh, and you know, be with their family. It's, it's the government creating a disincentive to allow, again, individuals to achieve their American dream and, and their sense of success. So I think it's bad for the individuals. I think it's bad for these families. I think it's bad certainly for our small businesses and our larger businesses, by the way. And it's terrible for the economy. And some of these jobs you know, will go away. So this is a, a true danger because there are restaurants that are closing down, as I said, and other companies. There are others that are finding ways to, to automate and not to have those jobs in the future. So it actually is removing some jobs from our job market, which is exactly the opposite of what we ought to be doing. The dignity and self-respect that comes from work is a good thing. You know, in the sense of fulfillment you get from, from, a, from a hard state work is a good thing. So I think that may be an example, Lonnie, maybe just because one I'm so focused on today where American people sort of say, okay, well, we get this. There's two visions here. One is you pay people not to work, and the other is you give people an incentive to go back to work. Yeah, the, the, the distinction is a very stark one, and, and I do think will have lasting repercussions for our economy if, if people fall out of the labor force and permanent, you know, make decisions essentially to exit the labor force. It, it may make them less competitive uh, you know, if and when the time comes when you know, they decide they want to come back in. That may be Absolutely. a more, much more difficult Absolutely. problem. You know, with uh, things uh, moving as quickly as they are, um, your point is exactly right. I mentioned the 720,000 manufacturing jobs that are open right now. Mm. Some of those manufacturers are telling me, including one in Ohio who needs 60 people right now, uh, and she's only got 250 people in her, in her company, that those, those who are not coming back are losing their ability to keep up. They're losing effective uh, training and the technology is shifting. And she's worried that uh, they become less employable by staying out of the labor market for so long and having this big gap in their in their resume, so you're you're right. It also, it, as a labor market expert like you are, you see that that this is actually hurting those individuals in terms of their ability to keep up and to and to stay at it and to be getting the latest training. We have a couple other questions about the possibilities for bipartisan action on a couple of areas. So I want to I want to tick through them. Valerie asks about climate change. Do you see there being the possibility of any bipartisanship on, on, on that issue? 
I, I do. I don't think it's going to be, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of cap and trade uh, sort of approach uh, with regard to energy credits that has been talked about in the past. I think it's going to be more focused on some of the doable things that, that, that actually will make a big difference over time. Um, one, of course, is in the energy sector, where if you look at the massive uh, shift toward electric vehicles, everybody believes that in the next couple of decades, we'll have a lot more electric cars. How will they be powered? In Ohio today, 43% uh, of that power comes from coal, as an example. Um, and so I think that will be a shift in terms of power generation and, in particular, using technology to be able to use particular natural gas and other fossil fuels like coal while sequestering the carbon. So you capture the carbon and sequester it and create a market for carbon. There's some great new technologies there, finally, and I do think there's a strong interest on Republicans and Democrats to say, let's figure out how to take our power sector and, and take the CO2 emissions out substantially, uh, which would help everything, including transportation, given the move to electric vehicles. So that's, a, that's one area where I think there's a, there's a great potential. There's also, of course, a lot of talk about new technologies, including in the nuclear space. Uh, Bill Gates spoke to our climate caucus uh, last week. I'm in the, in the Senate climate caucus working with my colleagues on some of these ideas. And as you know, he and others have um, new technologies they're promoting with regard to nuclear power, which are actually you know, quite, quite promising, uh, which is zero emissions. Hydropower, there's a new agreement that's been reached between environmentalists and some of the hydropower uh, producers. Uh, there's a lot more potential for hydropower in our country. Some of the countries in the world that have made the greatest progress on CO2 emissions or have the lowest CO2 emissions rely on hydropower. And of the thousands and thousands of dams in almost every state, uh, some of them are actually, um, you know, able to be converted into power generating uh, stations in effect. And the Ohio River is an example of that in my home state of, of Ohio. So that's, that's an example. Energy efficiency. Um, I'm along with Gene Shaheen, the author of the energy efficiency bill we've been trying to get past it for a while now. We've gotten some of it out uh, and, and in, into law, but there's much more to do to make our factories, our homes, our federal government far more energy efficient. And the savings are tremendous with regard to buildings in particular, which is where about 40% of, of energy is used. So these are all examples. Um, and my view is all of these can be done without a big disruption to the economy, uh, which is what many of the Democrats are proposing through the Green New Deal is huge disruptions to the way our economy works and not, allow, not allowing people to use the energy we have here um, you know, in America, in the ground, um, and instead, you know, asking people to pay a lot more for energy. I think there's ways to avoid that by some of these new technologies. Uh, one final one I've got to throw in here is that probably the, the fourth biggest source of CO2 is the burning of forests. Mm. And I think this is one where Republicans and Democrats can come together. And we have over time. As an example, uh, in the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, there was a a decision to try these debt for nature swaps. And we took that in Congress and, and wrote a bill called the Tropical Forest Conservation Act, which has saved, um, I don't know, something like uh, 86 million acres of tropical forest from being exploited, developed, burned um, by doing these debt for nature swaps where you relieve that country's debt to the United States. Usually it's USAID debt, uh, sometimes agriculture debt, which is unlikely to be paid back anyway in many cases. Their balance sheet gets better. From a fiscal point of view, it helps the country, uh, but it also protects 
these forests from being burned and therefore, as I said, probably the fourth biggest source of CO2 emissions. Now there's still countries like Brazil and the Congo where there's more work to be done there, but this has been a very successful program without losing a single American job and without costing the taxpayers uh, hardly anything. Um, so there's, there's ways to be creative about this. And my hope is that on a bipartisan basis, we can make a lot of progress on those sorts of things I talked about today and, and maybe, you know, not focus so much on the one big thing that would cause such disruption to the economy. What about the issue of uh, police reform and, uh, you know, questions that have come up in, in light of uh, George Floyd's murder, as well as some of the other uh, incidents we've seen over, over these last many, many months and in, indeed extending beyond that? Do you see any prospect for bipartisanship in, on that issue? Uh, I feel better about it today than I would have uh, several months ago. You recall last year we had a bill that uh, my colleague Tim Scott from South Carolina had proposed on police modernization. And it was such a partisan time that Democrats wouldn't even allow it to come up to a vote. So they, they blocked it from being considered. And uh, it's too bad because had we gone into that debate, we would have had amendments offered. We could have worked through them. I think we could have come out with a proposal that was widely supported. It wouldn't be perfect for the right or the left, but it would have helped with regard to the issue of modernization of police practices and things like um, funding body cameras, things like better training, um, all the things that I think you can find some consensus on. Uh, right now, I think we're, we're closer to that than we were then. There seems to be a, a genuine interest on the right and the left to trying to come up with something. Uh, and perhaps the anniversary of, of George Floyd will, uh, uh, the George Floyd tragic killing will will generate even more interest in it. And that happens in, in the next week here. So we'll see. I mean, there, there are some liability issues that stand in the way right now. Um, the question is, you know, where should the liability go? I'm very concerned about the attrition and also the recruitment challenges that law enforcement has these days already. And the law enforcement's under a lot of pressure, so we have to be careful in how this is done. But I think, I think we can get to something that, that makes sense and that uh, creates more standardization around the country and, and more help uh, for the vast majority of law enforcement officials who do want to see um, improvements and reforms. Uh, not all, but, but I think the vast majority do. And um, uh, legislation could actually be helpful to them in terms of best practices. So uh, this is one I'm actually more optimistic on today than I would have been several months ago. We have just a couple minutes left, so I want to close with a, with a question for you. You've announced that you won't be seeking re-election to the Senate uh, next year. You've got uh, a healthy amount of time here left to get some really important things done. But when you look back uh, upon your departure, what are you going to miss most about being in the Senate, about, about uh, being a, a part of the uh, legislative branch as you've been for, for the last uh, you know, extensive period of time here? Yeah. Well, first of all, Lonnie, it's been great to work with you uh, and your colleagues at, at Hoover. And you and I have had uh, also a campaign experience together when you were the policy director for uh, then Governor Romney, now Senator Romney. And um, look, I, I, I love policy. I love getting things done. I, I am frustrated, frankly, that we aren't doing more bipartisanship now. And I see that, again, as I said earlier, over the 30 years I've been an observer here, either as a elected official myself or in, or in one of four administrations. I worked in, uh, as I said, the first Bush and second Bush administration um, as director of legislative affairs um, in the first Bush administration, second Bush administration in two cabinet level jobs. And 
I've seen it change. So it's, it's harder. And for me, that's why I'm here. So it makes it harder to make the sacrifices uh, to my family and, and, and uh, you know, not to be home, home as much. Um, but what will I miss the most? I, for me, it's interaction with constituents. This has been a tough year for that with COVID. Uh, you know, we haven't been able to have the, the larger gatherings that we would want to have or sometimes any gatherings at all. And because uh, it's great to get the input from people and then try to take that input and translate it into good policy and work on a bipartisan basis to get that done. So that's what's excited me about the job. I hope to continue to play a role just as you are right now. And you have been, uh, you know, by being involved uh, on the outside, providing advice to through a commission or through, um, you know, other public policy avenues, because I'm, I've got a passion for it. But I'm also really looking forward to being with my family and our little family business more and, uh, you know, being able to have a more normal life. So thank you for you and Hoover for the help you give me over the years. It's been a, it's been a great relationship. And you guys have given me a lot of good ideas, some of which are now part of the law of the land. Well, thank you for the leadership you've taken, the substantive role you've played in, in the dialogue. I think people can see very clearly from our conversation that you are a person of great, uh, deep substance, a thoughtful uh, leader, someone who's been at the center of all these issues. So uh, certainly from us, thank you for all that you've done in, in your public life. And we look forward to seeing you in your next chapter, uh, you know, wherever that might be. So thanks for, for taking the time today, Senator. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And likewise, Lanhee, I'm encouraging you to run for office, as you know. So as, as I step out of elected office, uh, I, I think you ought to consider it. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that very much. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Uh, I'm thank you in trouble. Th th thank you for being with <laughs> us today. Uh, you can learn more about, about our series at, at Hoover here at hoover.org slash Capital Conversations. And our next discussion will be May 26th with uh, Kevin Hassett, my colleague, and Senator Jack Reed. Thanks for being with us.